I'm told that the choir is moving its special music, so we'll go right now to the sermon, and then they will be uh, sharing their special music with us in just a little bit. Um, the next, uh, we've changed up a bit in our, in our preaching schedule. I'll be doing a series here for the next few weeks, and then Pastor Steve will do a series later on um, in the fall. So um, I would invite you then, I'm, I'm excited for this opportunity, uh, thankful for the chance to, uh, to preach this morning and for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi is one of the so-called minor prophets, those that are not the major prophets in terms of their length, not minor in terms of their importance because it's God's word and it's all very important. Malachi appears in our Bibles right before the book of Matthew, so the last book in the Old Testament. And as we start a new book, there's a need for us, I think, to get a feel for the context and the situation and the setting of, the, of what's going on here. Who was Malachi? When was he writing? What was going on in Old Testament Israel in his day, uh, in their society, in their worship, in their culture? How was God at work? And how has God particularly sent this prophet at this time with this message? And if we can ask and understand some of these questions, I think that helps us to see what we share in common with those people and helps us to understand the issues and the principles such that we can apply the book effectively in our day as well. So I'm going to do a bit of a longer introduction than usual here to help us uh, get into the book of Malachi. First, we really know nothing about Malachi uh, as a prophet. His name means my messenger. And some scholars even think that the book is anonymous, that Malachi isn't an actual name of a person, that he was just uh, so-called because that was the title of the book, but that he was just my messenger. He was an anonymous messenger from the Lord. So scholars kind of debate back and forth whether there was an actual person named Malachi. We don't have any other Malachis in the Old Testament. But um, we really know nothing else about him. And his prophetic strategy is very interesting. The structure of his book is framed in terms of a dispute between God and his people, a sort of he said, she said kind of dispute that's going on. There's a complexity to it and there's variation as it goes throughout the book. But the basic idea is this. God makes a statement and then God's people say, uh, God's people respond with a question. And so it's, it's indicated by, but you say, or and you say. And then God responds with a challenge. God responds then with the prophetic indictment, seeking to get to their heart, their motivations, and their attitudes. And this process in the book of Malachi happens in, uh, with variation, but clearly in six different sections. There's six things that God, six topics that God wants to bring to his people's attention where he wants to get their attention, where he wants to get at their hearts and their motivations. And so we'll see those as we go. It's sort of going to be the structure for these sermons. And this idea of this dispute is not without parallel in the prophets. Oftentimes we see that. I've listed a few other Old Testament examples there in the sermon outline in which God puts forward the words of his people and then he refutes them. But here in Malachi, it really defines the structure of the book and tells us as he changes up and divides between different topics. Finally, by way of introduction, I would mention that this book is written as a dramatic, sort of intimate encounter of God with his people. Of the 55 verses of Malachi, 47 of them, that is all but eight of them, are God speaking 
first person personally to his people. So as opposed to some of the other prophets, we don't have the prophet acting something out symbolically. We don't have the prophet having some kind of otherworldly vision. What we have is God speaking to his people. First person, face to face, in a very straightforward, in a very direct and practical kind of way. So let's Look then at the book. We'll read of this first dispute. It's on page 675 if you're using the Pew Bible. The sermon outline, of course, is in the bulletin as well. Malachi chapter 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. And they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Please pray with me. Father, we come now to words written many years ago and spoken many years ago and yet are are true and, and important for us this day. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your prophet and through your word, Lord, that you would use these words to change us and to mold us and to shape us, and that you would give me the words to speak that are true that are from you, and that they would build up and bless your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading an article a few weeks ago that described how the attitudes of the younger generation in America are becoming increasingly cynical towards their, their chances of reaching the same level of prosperity and standard of living that, they, that their parents enjoyed. In a completely unrelated way, a couple days ago, I was uh, watching TV with the kids, and I found that the whole collection of Leave It to Beaver shows, 230 episodes or something, are uh, on Netflix. So I introduced the kids to a couple episodes with Theodore and Wally and June and Ward and all of that, you know, from 1957. And these two things together sort of reminded me, and this sermon reminded me of this, the promise of the post-war generation of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and 80s, of this American dream of a better life than each previous generation, of more education, of more opportunities, of more traveling, of inventing and growing, that part of the American psyche from the frontier days is this pervasive optimism, this sort of myth of limitless horizons, and each generation having the chance at a better life than the one before. But according to this article, and the results of polls in recent years, this myth is dying slowly in America. The most underemployed group in America from a Gallup poll a couple of years ago are 18 to 29-year-olds. Over 30% of them are underemployed. That means employed with you know, a job that's less than their education or less than, than they're qualified for. Twice the rate of older adults for that age group. A college degree, even from a good school, doesn't necessarily get you a job in your field. It's likely to get you a lot of debt, though. It's hard to get independence. 
The same opportunities don't seem to be there as before. Optimism is dying. And as a result, cynicism is rising in the younger generation in America. My point isn't that there's necessarily something to lament here. Material prosperity, of course, isn't the goal of life or the best measure of a society. But the point is that there's a, there's a parallel here. There's a similar situation going on in the, in the prophet Malachi's day some 24 centuries ago with a spiritual parallel, not an economic one, but a spiritual one. The setting of Malachi is after the return of God's people from exile. If you remember the history in the Old Testament, God gave the land of Israel to his people, the promised land. They lived there for centuries. Their hearts turned away from him. And eventually, uh, God, God would bring them back, and he would send prophets. And again and again, and their hearts turned away from him, and they rebelled against him. And eventually, Babylon came in and in 587 destroyed Jerusalem for the final time, deported the majority of the people. God's people sent, were sent off into exile. And normally in the ancient world, that was it for those people. Those people stopped existing. Those people were assimilated, and they never again regathered a sense of national or ethnic identity. They were scattered and lost. But God was not done with his people. And God raised up Cyrus, a Persian, who conquered the Babylonians. Cyrus had a policy to return conquered people to their lands and let them uh, practice their own religion. So some 50 years after the exile, the exiles began to return to Jerusalem. Perhaps as many over the next few years as 50,000 people returned to Jerusalem. But even though they were home, they were discouraged in those early years. So God sent prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage the people not to give up, but to rebuild the temple, to start there, to rebuild the temple. And so that was completed in 515 B.C. And so then expectations began to grow very high that God would bring about the messianic age that he had promised in his prophets of prosperity and of blessing. Expectations grew. But the decades passed, and the people again grew discouraged and lukewarm and nominal, declining in their faith and their worship. They lost zeal and energy for the God who had saved them. They were going through the motions. They had become disillusioned. They had become cynical. But God wasn't done with them. So God sent Ezra, the great scribe and the lawgiver, to call them back to the covenant. And God raised up Nehemiah with a burden and the resources to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to lead the people. And around this time, God sent Malachi. And it's difficult for us to know exactly where Malachi lines up with Ezra and Nehemiah, but we can confidently say that they were contemporaries, that they're addressing the same kinds of spiritual issues and societal problems. So to a wishy-washy people, to a people filled with doubt and disillusionment, God sent his prophets And God sent this prophet. So let's look then at Malachi's message. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. God begins his dispute with his people by saying, I have loved you. We could translate it, I love you. It's a Hebrew perfect, so that's a description of past completed action, but often with not limited to the past, but continuing into the present. I love you. I have loved you. You've seen it in the past, and it's still up to date. And it's extremely significant that this is where God begins. 
He doesn't begin with their rebellion or their disobedience. He doesn't start with a list of their failures. There were many. He begins at the root. He begins at the foundation. He begins at the heart of his relationship with his people. I've loved you. It's a simple statement. It's profound and world-changing. The God of the universe has turned his affections toward his people with an undeserved kindness. No one makes him do this. He just does it. So God's opening salvo of his dispute, his first shot fired from his prophet, is this. I've loved you, and I've cared for you, and I've made amazing promises to you, and I've bound myself to that in a covenant. And the people respond with a question, as they do in this sort of dispute pattern back and forth in the book. But you ask, how have you loved us? The people are asking, how have you loved us? In what way, in what manner have you loved us? They're not asking a sort of philosophical question. It's an experiential one. How have we experienced your love? I think it's easy to catch a note of sarcasm here. A kind of, if you really loved me, then wouldn't my life be different? Or even with a sharper sense, what good is God's love? What's the point of being his chosen people? As their recent history has felt like promises unfulfilled and hopes fading away, and decades of waiting and no answers from God. Certainly, it seems that the people have lost perspective. They've lost touch with God. They've given in to the sense of disappointment and disillusionment. One question that we might ask at this point is, were these people really saying this? Right? Were they really saying it? Verbally, out loud? Was that a theme? Was that a conversation happening? I think uh, many of the lines of this but-you-say pattern in Malachi seem to be the thing that God's people are thinking rather than what they're really saying. Part of the brilliance of Malachi's prophecy, right, is that he's putting words to their actions, true words that describe the actual content of their hearts that are being shown forth by their actions. In other words, based upon how God's people are acting towards him, they must be reasoning in their hearts, how has God loved us? And therefore, Malachi puts those words into their mouths. He puts their heart displayed by their actions. He puts that into their mouths. And he says, this is what God is hearing from you. How have we experienced your love? This is an an integrity, right? This is God putting the true actions to words of his people. How does God respond God could have pointed to a long history of his salvation on display for his people. He could have talked about the exodus. He could have talked about the gift of the promised land. He could have talked about how he did this historical miracle to bring them out of exile and replant them in their land. And how he promised he would do that and he brought that about. God doesn't point to those other things. He could have pointed to all of biblical history to talk about his love for his people. But God points to one particular event or one particular story. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob 
But Esau I've hated, and I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, that is the people named for Esau. Uh, so, the, you know, like Israel was named for Jacob, the people of Esau are Edom. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. The story of Jacob and Esau, of course, is one we might be familiar with from Genesis 25 and following in the next few chapters there. If you are familiar with it, you remember, of course, that Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. They were sons of Isaac, grandsons of Abraham, born to Rebekah, who was barren, as an answer to Isaac's prayers. Their mother noticed during her pregnancy how they seemed to be striving against one another even within the womb. She inquired to the Lord about it, and the Lord said, Two nations are within you. One is stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. The stories of Jacob and Esau growing up are ones of sibling rivalry and parental manipulation and deceit and conflict. In the end, Jacob the younger, of course, does gain the blessing and gains the advantage over his brother. Why? Well, it so happens Malachi seems to be saying here that that's because God loved Jacob and hated Esau. It's important to mention that in this sense, love and hate are working as comparisons, not absolutes. So, in other words, God's treatment of Esau looks like hate when compared to God's love for Jacob. So I think, we should, I think that's an important qualifier, that the Hebrew is, is working in terms of opposites, not in terms of absolutes or comparisons. So we shouldn't think of it as though God despised Esau, that God hated him, that God that God had stored up wrath for him, was determined to blot him out of existence or something like that, that, he, you know, that God just had it in for Esau. Because he didn't. Esau blessed and was prospered and, and became a nation. So in that sense, it wasn't God hated Esau. But we do see in these stories that God's love for Jacob is unexpected. It cuts across cultural expectations in which the oldest son was always the favored one. It cuts across Isaac's wishes, who loved Esau more. It cuts across the actions of the two boys, both of who were scoundrels, both of who treated each other deceitfully, neither of who deserved God's blessing. So God's love is not bound up with what? It's not bound up with earning or merit. It's unconditional. God's love is not bound up with the expectations of people. It's sovereign. God's love is not weak. It's effective in history because it works powerfully in the lives of whom it is directed. Jacob comes to a place of repentance and humility before God. It takes a long time. And God has to do a lot of things in his life. But he gets there. Esau despises his birthright and rebels against God's ways and marries foreign women and does all of that stuff, rejecting the ways of his parents and their God. God's, God's love has an effect on those to whom it is given. And this really leads us into deep waters, right, about how God's love really works. There's much that's a mystery. Christians over the centuries, of course, have struggled to understand what seems arbitrary about God's love. We argue about predestination and election and why God chooses some and not others and the Apostle Paul uses this passage actually in his treatment of the subject in Romans 9. 
And we don't have time to get into all of this. But for some people, of course, and for us, this strikes us as a stumbling block. This strikes us as something that is impossible to understand. Why God chooses some, God doesn't choose others. How does human freedom fit in with all this? Well, part of the problem is that we're Americans, after all. You know, at least most of us, I assume. And we tend to think that fairness looks like equality of opportunity. We tend to think that fairness looks like equality of opportunity. And so we expect God to operate in ways that seem fair to us. The reality is that God's love has seemed to be, for all of human history, spread unevenly across the globe. God has dealt with nations and people groups in different ways at different times. All who've ever lived have experienced a measure of his blessings as they've experienced the gift of life, as they've experienced the bearing of his image, as they've experienced the beauty of living in his world, and the rain that falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. All have experienced some of that, all of that, but some have experienced his salvation and his promises made toward them and the blessings of his covenant, of a relationship with him and a gift of forgiveness and eternal life. In fact, some have the riches of theology available and others don't. We could illustrate this in lots of ways. How many Bibles do you have lying around your house that you haven't opened in a long time? We have, what, 100 150 Bibles in this room that we use about, what, a half an hour a week? How many people around the globe don't have access to a Bible in their language at all? How many people around the globe would be thrown in jail or killed for having a Bible in their language? Right? God's love is not spread evenly around the globe. The county that we lived in in Alabama, Perry County, had 11,000 residents. According to actual statistics, there were about 90 churches in the county. It was a rural county, and at every corner of every intersection there were churches because it used to be too far to go to town, and those churches kind of continued on and maintained their own buildings and their cemeteries. Are there 90 churches in this country of Afghanistan for, what, 30 million, 15, 30 million people? God's love has always been spread unevenly around the globe, and we don't know why. And we can't sort out all of these questions. But we do see that part of God's response to his people who are questioning his love is to show them the contrast. Edom, the land of the descendants of Esau, excuse me, was a ruin. It was a home to the jackals of the desert. It was conquered by the Nabataeans, perhaps right around this time of Malachi. Perhaps this was a contemporary kind of event. The Nabataeans, of course, built Petra as their capital, the treasury of which is the place where Indiana Jones found the the Holy Grail. You know, that famous building that's cut into the walls, that's Petra, where the Nabataeans' capital was. The Nabataeans had driven out the Edomites from that land south of the Dead Sea. And Esau and Edom say, we will rebuild our ruins, but God says you will not. And in contrast to God's people who had their city in ruins and was now being rebuilt, God says Edom will never rebuild. And indeed, the Edomites have faded from history. Who are they? Where are they? 
We don't see them anymore. Our passage wraps up this morning as God's people begin to recognize what all this means in verse 5. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. God describes how, when they see this contrast between the fortunes of Israel and the fortunes of Edom, that they will respond with worship, that they will see the greatness of God, that they will see that God's greatness is shown because he's not a tribal God. He's not just dealing with one kind of people. God is the Lord of the world, dealing with every kind of people, sovereign over their plans, doing unexpected and gracious things, working in ways that no one would have seen, culminating in the arrival of his son, come to save people from where? From every tribe and language and ethnic group and nation, including Edomites. Jesus came for people from every kind, for every kind of people. So Malachi is beginning his prophetic message with this foundation, that God's covenant, his promise-keeping, faithful love, and this last verse says that 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 love and the demonstration of it will move his people to worship, will move his people to see his greatness. And worship, indeed, is where the text will take us next week as the prophet continues to bring this dispute with his people. What about for us today? We see that God's people have something. We see in this passage that God's people have something to answer for in closing their eyes to his miraculous work in their history and in acting as though God didn't love them or he hadn't done enough for them. And this brings us up short, doesn't it? Even more on this side of the cross, do we see all that God's love has accomplished, the lengths to which God has gone to say to his people, I've loved you, I love you. What's difficult, I think, in preaching this passage, what's been a burden for me, And for us today is to consider again the love of God. On this side of the cross, in our daily lives, how do we experience the love of God? And I would confess to you that I can't really, I can't really, really wrap my mind around it. I can tell you the biblical pictures of what God's God's love looks like. But what's the reality in my heart in response to God's love? How is it changing me? How is it changing you? What does it look like for us to come face to face with the reality of the God of the universe who says to you, to you, I've loved you. And we can't sort of explain it away. We can't say why. We can't say, but what about this? Right? Because that's all he says. I've loved you. And what does it look like for us to sort of sit quietly and wrestle with that and, and let ourselves be embraced by this kind of love of God? Because it's nothing that you've done or haven't done. It's related to no choices of your own. From before you were born, from eternity past, there's no place for pride here. 
If you're a believer in Christ and his spirit lives inside of you, then God loves you. He loves you with a particular, dramatic, and choosing kind of love. And even when people don't choose us, and even when the news is bad, and even when life seems to be falling apart, or even when everything is going well, beneath it all, somehow, is this sovereign love of God that's particular, that's intimate. And God has said it to his people. I've loved you. Jesus took on our flesh. Jesus walked in the dust of our planet, and he looked at people and he loved them. And this morning, what's our response to that? Is our response to that a sort of, what have you done for me lately? Or is our response for that, I believe, Jesus, forgive me, and change my heart and let me follow you. As we close this morning, I find, you know, every human analogy kind of breaks down. Every illustration doesn't really capture it. I'm going to try anyway. It's helpful for us to see what God's look like, God's love looks like, and kind of how it can, how it, what, it, what it can do. I had an acquaintance who was in seminary, not really a friend, but, you know, someone I knew. He and his wife had struggled for a number of years to have children, and they weren't able. So they began to go down the, the process of adoption. Uh, and, and they went along this path, eventually finding a mother who would give her unborn child to them. So they became acquainted with her. They began to love her, kind of support her and get to know her during her pregnancy. They had begun legal proceedings as well. And at some point along the way, I don't really know all the details, this mother and this couple got this devastating news that something was very wrong with this baby and that the child would not survive after birth. And so they were sort of faced with a choice. The adoption was already in process. What would they do? The normal response would be, of course, to stop the proceedings and and walk away and not continue on. But this couple decided to move forward and to be with this mother through it all and to continue to take the steps to legally adopt this child. As the story goes, at one point in the legal proceedings, one of the judges in the courtroom was moved to tears to hear the story and to see the love of this couple. The time came, the baby was born, uh, survived for a few minutes, and then it died. And they were there with the birth mother together, able to care for the baby. And God's love is like that. But God... God chooses to adopt children who were children of wrath, who were doomed to die. But unlike what this couple or any human could do, God can heal. And God can save. And his love can overcome our sin. And then God's love in our lives begins to make us able somehow to do supernatural things too. As this couple was able to do in this situation in adopting this child? What does it look like for us to be changed by God's love? What does it look like for it to to impact us, to change us? What does it look like for us to be embraced by it and to not qualify it, 
And to not say, but, 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 but to say, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe in your love. In good times and bad times. As we prepare this morning for the Lord's Supper, in the next few moments, we find a display, a picture, a very tangible participation in the love that God has extended to the world and to his people. Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we don't understand these things, and we don't know what and why you do the things you do. But Lord, we don't want to be people who are ungrateful. Lord, we don't want to be people who are, who are unmoved by what you've done. We want to be people who are changed by what you've done. Help us to see it. Help us to believe it with eyes of faith when things are hard. Help us, Lord, to know of your love for us and then to respond with love for others. God, use this prophet in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.